This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, August 1st, 2020. Dornall, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ask how you're weak. I'm going to do that normal thing. Is, is there a day, is there like a holiday for the, I mean, I know like the first of, April is April Fool's Day. Is is the first of August like Jerks Day or Idiots Day or Drunkards Day or or something similar? I hate to break it to you, Daddy Warpig, but that's just about every other day. Oh, did something yeah. in did something in particular happen to make you wonder if it was a special day for jerks? Well, I, I was doing two things there, really. I, that just kind of occurred to me last night as I was thinking about today. But I was also setting you up for a joke. Did I did I mess that up? I, no, I, I was just kind of lobbing a softball at you to see if you'd catch it. I was waiting for you to say, yeah, it's late person's day. Was, oh, was I see. I see. No, you're you're on another level for me, Daddy Warping. This is why you write the jokes on the show. <laughs> yeah, I was I was actually late today, folks. Like at at exactly and this I don't think this has ever happened ever in, in the entire show. Uh at twelve up, straight twelve up, time to start start the show. I was not even anywhere close. To signing in to being on the show. It was Brad and uh, John there um, talking in the green room, <laughs> waiting for me to scramble. I was actually at that moment looking for, for my earphones. So it took me another full three minutes to decouple them from my phone, couple them to my computer, and sign in and assure people I was actually alive. Which, sorry, just checking again. Yes, I am alive and I am here. This is reality. This is not a dream. Except, unless you think all of this is a dream. It could uh, be. In which case, welcome to my shared hallucination. So, I, I, we've got some more information to... On the dream front, more proof on the dream front, or or as people call it, the simulation. Sure. I don't want to go into the background because it's nitty gritty, real world details that are kind of grody and just uh, they're they're a downer, and I don't want to be a downer on the show. But I do want to mention this because it's so freaking hilarious. Yesterday, in connection with some things. The FBI released a massive document dump uh, about a huge and ongoing scandal concerning many, many, many powerful and rich men. Mm. Now, you know what scandal to which I refer? Mm -hmm. Powerful and rich and prominent political figures high in government uh, places who have been doing some naughty, naughty, bad, evil things. They released these damn documents, and they took the pains to go through and redact these documents, which means they covered the text in black so you can't read names and circumstances. Hmm. Very important. So that certain information that makes the FBI look bad isn't released. Wait, wait, wait. They did it so that the FBI wouldn't look bad? I, I thought the purpose of that was to protect identities and sources and, and other things that weren't ready to be released yet. Are you telling oh, me that sure. it was, it was purely, a, purely a PR move to redact the stuff that would embarrass the FBI? Oops, I'm sorry. Was I being cynical on the air again? My bad. Sources and methods to protect sources <laughs> and methods. My bad. I, 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 I have allowed my cold-hearted interior 
to be free on the air again. Please forgive me besmirching the reputation of the FBI. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, Daddy Warpig, is one of our oldest and most respected government institutions. Yes, I with should a- not have besmirched their reputation with rumor and innuendo when I can besmirch their reputation with sheer mind-boggling incompetence. Because in redacting that information, all you have to do in at least one of these critical documents to gain access to the unredacted information is to copy it and paste it into MS Word. (laughs) Or notes, even notes. The text editor, the default text editor that ships with Windows, copy, paste, and you can read everything that's in the document. That's amazing. That's the FBI, folks. Those are the crack federal investigators who are in charge of our national counterintelligence apparatus. I feel so much safer. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like they hired some intern (laughs) to, hey, you need to go over this text. You know, here's the stuff that you need to black out. And they're like, okay, I'm not sure how to do that. I guess I'll just highlight it and change the background to black. That works, right? (laughs) Black on black. Nobody can read that. You can see why the thing about August 1st being maybe, I mean, I know it's not officially April Fool's, but it it makes you wonder. <laughs> so. This you know, is my policy, Daddy Warpig. I, it would make me wonder, but I've, I've said it several times already. Once the Cubs were, won the World Series, all bets are off. I, I, uh, I hate to say it. Maybe I've become jaded. Reality cannot surprise me. Well, Um, no, I take, I take that back. Uh, In the green room, uh, Bradford and I. uh, Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out with us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I I know you had something else you wanted to talk about, Daddy Warpig, but apparently, people pretending to be anime girls on live streams on YouTube and Twitch TV is a thing. So. I I don't have any more to say about that. It's just sometimes reality can surprise me. Um. So how was your week? Because I promised we'd get around to that after I got done with the FBI. Oh, my week was fine. Uh, just uh, the normal stuff, day to day, enjoying my uh, my quarantine at home. We're not so quarantined these days, but Washington State's one of those states where. Uh, the governor's decided that masks are mandatory everywhere when you're out in public inside, at least. And uh, most most people wear them in, in stores, and most people just go to the park and don't wear them anyway. It's nice. Uh, we've had some crazy heat. Uh, there's about one month during the year in western Washington where it's just hot and dry, which is nice. And I don't mean Utah hot and dry. Uh, I lived in Salt Lake for a few years, and and I'm I don't want to hang out in 105 degree heat anymore. But uh, yeah, <laughs> we've had uh, <clears throat> we've had 85 degrees and sunny all week, uh, and so it's been nice a nice time to be out here on the sound. But I haven't been doing much, uh, just hanging out, role playing games in the evenings. You know how it is. Cool. All right. See, my voice is fading because uh, I need a sip of water. <laughs> you stop, and immediately I start talking, and I realize, huh, my mouth is dry. I, here's, a, here's a professional technique I, I learned from, from awesome radio hosts like Daddy Warpig. You, you can drink while I'm talking. Yes, that is true. Um, so... What I wanted to do, I, I spent nine half hours of my life, uh, which is about four and a half hours. Um, 
Yeah, that's math, folks. That is the power of math. I don't know why that struck me as so funny, but you're on fire today, man. Keep them coming. I, I am so glad. I, I just realized I had a happy moment. Can I share my happy moment? That's what we're I here realized, for. I realized that I had forgotten enough of Star Trek Discovery to be able to quote their stupid line about how math is the greatest or yay math. or I, I don't even know what they said anymore. I have forgotten Star Trek Discovery enough that I don't know that line. So I can't quote it in bitterness and sarcasm. And that lifts my spirits. That makes me feel better. I have become a better person. Fast I don't mean, sorry, folks. I don't I don't mean to uh, I don't mean to tear, break your or sorry give you a downer daddy war pig but think about it there's probably a few billion people on the planet who either have avoided or never had the opportunity to ever watch star trek so we got to we got to count got to count your blessings well yeah those people bless them too they're better for it yeah they're better people they're not they're not supposed to go out daily and do battle with the badness of bad space opera Speaking of doing battle with the badness of bad space opera, clap, I had clap, a review. Clap. I had a review of a show called Adventure 5 that was broadcast on HBO that I made the mistake of watching a trailer of and thinking to myself, hey, that's got Hugh Laurie in it. And it doesn't look like, well, I mean, I like Hugh Laurie. I like him. I liked him in House MD, which was a spectacular show I watched the hell out of. I liked him in the seasons of Black Adder he was in. Uh, and he's a great actor. You know, that's great. I liked him in his little uh, cameo in Friends. Um, and I, I was excited. I thought, well, it's got Hugh Laurie. How bad could it be? How, uh, <laughs> how bad could it be, Daddy Warpig? Those of you with a proper sense of uh, of oncoming doom and a proper sense of foreshadowing can sense the blackness approaching on the horizon, can see the dark clouds yay out there with their jags of lightning, and though the rains have not yet come, you can sense, you can sense that it'll be a doozy. You can sense that we need to batten down the hatches. Man, this show is awful. I mean, and I'm not just talking. There's a lot of superficial awful about the show. But on a fundamental level, the show was really, really awful. You know, there's this trend in modern comedy with the woke where they say that comedy doesn't have to be funny anymore. And what they mean is you can have a comedian get up on stage and talk for 10 minutes and it can have all of the tempo of a stand-up comedian. They can talk like this and pause a little bit, and then talk like that, as if a punchline has just been delivered. Only nothing funny was said, and nobody laughs. Because it's not supposed to be funny. They've forgotten even the very concept of humor, and actually write articles Defending the fact that comedy isn't funny and say things like, you know, it's time to move beyond the concept of, quote unquote, funny. And they've got whole Netflix specials with people doing, quote unquote, 
comedy that never gets near funny. Well, this show is about a luxury starliner that takes people from Earth out to Saturn, around it, and back to Earth. It's supposed to be a six-month voyage that turns into a three-year voyage. So, if you can imagine a show that gets that far away, three-year voyage away from being funny. Wow. That's what I'm talking about. I've, I've read someone criticizing another type of show with the same problem. He called those things jokeoids. They had the structure and the cadence of a joke, but as you said, nothing funny was said. There was no punchline. And well, so you start you start to wonder have have has everybody forgotten how to write jokes? I the show is full of things that happen and characters that only makes sense if you're trying to make something funny, but they don't even try to make jokes. I mean, like they don't even try. They don't even do set up punchline. They're just kind of there saying lines. And it doesn't make sense as a drama. The, they're not even trying. I mean, a guy who gets on a car and drives around a track with a bunch of other cars is presumably at least trying to win, right? Sure. But what do you call somebody who gets a car and gets sponsored and gets stickers and has a pit crew and who puts on the uniform and, you know gets in the car and they wave the red flag and he doesn't drive anywhere and he just sits in the car and just watches everybody else drive. Is he even trying to race? Sounds like he sounds like he succeeded in getting a paycheck. This show succeeded in getting a paycheck. Yeah. I'm sure all the pe all the actors got paid. All the people's behind the scenes got paid. I'm glad that such important, productive members of society were able to make a living. But they didn't even, yeah, they didn't even try to make a functioning show. So beyond that, none of the people come across as human. Like none of them, not a single one of them in the entire show. Nothing, not a single thing they say or do the entire four and a half hours is recognizably human. And, and not in the rubber forehead alien kind of way, but in the Tommy Wiseau who wrote this kind of way. Yeah. And not even in a so good it's or so bad it's good kind of way. It's just baffling. So I'm I'm sorry you subjected yourself to that. You do you take a great deal of punishment and pain for even, our entertainment. Even Hugh Laurie couldn't make his character seem human. And it's not actually a bad idea. The idea for the show is actually a decent idea. Here's how it is. Like I said, it's a luxury starliner. It's basically a cruise in space, right? Sure. Um, you're taking one of those cruises out to Saturn and back. Well, in order to make it 
better for the passengers, they have actors hired to play the captain and the crew that everybody sees. They're models and actors and stuff. So they're all like beautiful, sexy, and everything you see on the bridge is a lie. It's all fake. It's a set. And the captain, all he's supposed to do is have a beard and seem in command and seem reassuring and laugh with the passengers and have great conversation around the table. That's his job. He's a conversationalist and he seems calm and steady. That's what he does. He's not a real captain. He doesn't know anything about space flight. He doesn't know anything about rocketry or anything else. And then behind the scenes in the lower decks where all the service people do laundry and keep the cleaning supplies and keep the foods to be cooked and taken up to the passenger decks, you have the real crew. You know, instead of wearing these beautiful spotless uniforms and, and absolutely flawless makeup, they're dressed in jumpsuits. They're grease monkeys. You know? That's an interesting setup that could, that has potential. Whoa, Dornall dropped out. That's not nervous making or anything. Um, and an accident happens and the ship has a big flip where all the people, the gravity flips for a bit, all the passengers get injured, and a couple of the critical actual real crew get killed. And then the fake captain has to step in and actually be a leader and actually do some real captaining. That could be an interesting, worthwhile series. It could be fun. It could be funny. But nobody who made the show knows how to make it good. And that's the problem. They squandered something great. They squandered legitimately good actors. Most of the people on the show, legitimately good actors. Are you back with us, Dorno? Hey, actors got to eat too. <clears throat> Technical difficulties resolved. Okay. But did, did you hear most of the, the premise of the show? I did. I did. It sounds like it sounds like someone had an, uh, a crazy idea. It sounds like something that you could work with. And uh, judging by your reaction, the the people that tried to implement it do not know how to write a funny story. Hey, comedy's hard. Comedy's hard. But the the part that bothers me is is that how did it get to that point? How did it get to be completely produced? We, no you know, people can tell when something's not funny. I think they got a big actor attached to the project and a big actor can do a lot to push a show through. Mm. Hey, they got you to watch. <laughs> Sucker. <True>. Okay. <laughs> I know we should hey, talk to, we should oh. talk, we should talk to our guest about good space stuff. I, I, I will say this. I do not recommend it. It's not four and a half hours well spent, so, you know, go watch something else. Or read something else, like Bradford C. Walker's stuff. Ooh, clap, clap, clap. <clears throat> Daddy Warpig, your top shelf segues today. This is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. 
Welcome to the show again. Yeah, glad to be back. I, how is it uh, is experiencing the Daddy Warpig rant? You're you're one of our uh, regular uh, live listeners. Is it different live versus uh, on YouTube? Aside from having to don't not having to account for the delay, not really. it's about the same. <laughs> it's about the same. It's about the same. Okay. Well, maybe maybe we'll do a special show where everybody just gets to hang out in chat and listen to Daddy Warpig do it live. Do what life? The rant. You know, some people just come here to. I did. I'm. I'm taken away. I'm taken away. Brad. Bradford Walker has been patiently sitting here, enjoying, enjoying the tasteful banter, and he wants to talk about his stuff. And now it's my turn to just take all that time away. Hey, how have you been, sir? You know, all things considered, I've been pretty good. You know, aside from that, that you know. That little side, you know, sidetrack I had a almost little, little over a year ago, where I was in in the hospital for a combined total of four months. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty good. Uh, in fact, I just had my last uh, my last regular checkup on Monday, so I'm you know I'm in pretty good health now, and that's one of the things that that had me uh, go ahead and you know start the start this uh, recent Indiegogo campaign so I can take my manuscript for book two of the Star Knight Saga, hand it off to Brian, pay him, have you know, and then I can get the, the you know the next volume into the hands of all of you, my faithful readers. Uh, that's great to hear. Yeah, just for, for anybody new, you had completed your first book in the, uh, the Star Knight Saga and the, then you had to, you were sick and you went to the hospital and you were gone for four months, right about the time when you wanted to sort of release it and get it out to everybody. And that sort of caused a delay in, in delivering it. But it sounds like you've had a really good year and you're ready to give us book two. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I've managed to, you know, adjust to life after, you know, life after, you know, a nearly, you know, yeah. Near death experience. Yeah. That's the way to put it. Um, you know, I'll, my remaining body functions are working well enough. Um, I'm pretty comfortable back at home and I'm, you know, I'm ready to get back to it. So with book two, we are picking up a few months after Reavers left off and the plot. And I don't waste a whole lot of time, you know, up front. Like this is all of this is like, you know, over and done with before, you know, before chapter one is halfway over. Yeah. You know, our dear heroine, Countess Gabriella Robin has been in hiding. The red eyes pirates have been trying to find her and the mastermind behind the events of book one has been busy dodging political counterattacks. And the plot picks up where that impasse is about to break. Um, both our hero, Lord Roland of the, you know, the Vatican Solar Guard, and our mastermind villain, you know, Count Vikun Kiss, have put together plots that are going to break this impasse. And they execute them about the same time. And the story that you will be reading with Hounds of Nimrod is the back and forth between those plots as they, you know, as both men try to outmaneuver the other and get them into a checkmate position. Uh, and this is not, you know, if you're looking for uh, something out of pop culture that, you know, to kind of compare this to, you're probably your go-to is going to be mission impossible Two, where both the he where both the hero and the villain try to outwit each other. And there's a woman in the middle who acts as the focus for that plot. Um, the big difference here, of course, is that there are laser swords and giant robots and spaceships. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's perfect. That's the one thing a Tom Cruise movie needed. And it sounds like you supplied it. <clears throat> So, yeah yeah and uh as you know by the you know by the time of this episode 
Uh, the campaign is it has 12 days to go. We are at you know 70% to goal. And uh, I'm offering a lot of the same perks that Brian does with his uh with his crowdfund campaigns for combat frame X seed. So if you've listened to his shows and if you haven't, um, if you haven't, you know, go you know, hit, go to the archives, uh, watch, you know, Brian's most recent appearances on, you know, on the gab and uh, what he does with build a mech and be in a book, die in a book, that kind of thing. I'd offer the same thing. And at roughly the same, uh, the same costs. And in fact, if you go to the campaign page and you, you know, you'll find that there are three build mech slots left to be had. And if those three slots are filled, we will hit goal. And I can, and the first stretch goal immediately becomes available as well as a new perk, which is going to be yet another build kind of option, but for something a little bigger. Cool. Uh, and how, how have those options been received? Uh, Build a Mech has had, you know, has, you know, has been well received. In fact, one of the buyers is in the chat. Um, but since I've, this is the first time I've offered it, there may be some reticence as to uh, what, you know, whether or not it's going to be exactly the same procedure. I will assure you, uh, I'm not, ex Brian hasn't, you know, I've never bought one from Brian because I haven't had the spare cash, but pretty much what Brian does is what I will be doing. And that will include, you know, Ardenon, who's also in the chat will illustrate your mech and I will post the final stats to the blog with the illustration and it will become Canon for the star Knight saga. Well, that sounds like fun. I still owe Brian a build a mech for his last thing. Um, <laughs> I, I I must disclose the fact that I've already backed it. Um, I'm looking forward to my dead tree copy as soon as it's available. I'll put it right next to Reavers on my <laughs> bookshelf. Um, I might even read it. Uh, uh, that's that's a joke. I, I I liked Reavers. We talked about it on the show. Mm -hmm. So that sounds great. If to to recap, you've got. Uh, sequel that uh, sort of follows up from the plots of the first one, and you've got perks similar to Brian, so that people can sort of uh, help fund the book, so that you can you know fund editing services and everything, and you they can put themselves into the story. They can either put a character into the story, or they can build a giant robot that will become part of the of the narrative. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. And, you know, for those who who are coming in late, um, don't worry about catching up. If you back for a book at all, it, you will get a digital copy of Reavers emailed to you uh, as soon as the campaign is over. And the first stretch goal is that anybody who puts in for a paperback will also get a paperback copy of Reavers automatically if, you know, once we hit the stretch goal. Oh, cool. Um, oh, I had a question and I took a sip of tea and I lost it. Is this when I'm supposed to jump in and save you? Help, help. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when you're looking for mechs to build, has, uh, has the people who've, who've built them just really surprised you? Um, I I really hope so. This is the first time I've offered build a mech, so this is going to be new for me. Uh, going, you know, my, going from what people have done with Brian's, you know, Brian's stuff for Combat Frame Max Seed, um, I'm hoping I get the same kind of the same kind of surprise creativity. Uh, and I I expect I will because you know, Brian's rules for X Seed by you know by nature have to be a little more constrained because of what he's you know what he's using as his model and i'm you know i'm the 
my, my paradigm for mech design is a lot broader because I'm playing with a mature galactic civilization. And even though the levels of technological vary, you know, availability vary from place to place, there is something of a baseline. And that baseline is what I, what I, I established with the mechs that appeared in Reavers. So the, the going, you know, the going uh, baseline is basically if if you could imagine it appeared in in uh, in something like Mobile Suit Gundam, that's pretty viable. But we're going to see some new designs of different scales with with Hounds of Nimrod. We're going to be seeing some smaller some smaller stuff um, because the action in in Hounds of Nimrod is based around the Terran solar system, good old Earth. Uh, we're going to see uh, action see action on Earth. We're going to see action uh, around Ganymede. We're going to see some action around Mars, and some of it is going to be man to man. Some of it's going to be smaller smaller mechs in action. There's going to be some interaction between you know between you know scales of machines that that heretofore have been implied but haven't really been brought forward and focused on. So. Uh, we're going to see that that there is more, a larger room for what is available in mech design when uh, I hope <laughs> when our build a mech backers, you know, get together with me uh, after the campaign's over, we start talking about you know what we're going to do. So that's a that's a great point that you make that you've got a broader selection because when I did the build a mech with Brian. Well, the first thing I asked, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll let me come back around. A lot of people have an idea because they're fans of the genre, what they want to write. But in my case, I, I'm not. And I asked Brian, hey, what's the context? What what sorts of holes do you are you trying to fill in the story or the plot or something like that? And the first time around, it was like, well, you know, I've got room for an alien mech and I've got room for this and that. And I was like, cool, let me do the alien mech. So that's that's the sort of thing that it's good for you to have that answer ready to say, hey, you know, there's room for uh, terrestrian, you know, terrestrial fighting on Mars or Earth, and there's room for giant space battles and blah blah blah. You know, whatever whatever your influence is, we'll try to work it out. <laughs> I actually that also brought me to a question I had about the story itself. Uh, it sounds like you're going a and you revealed. Uh, spoiler uh, in Reavers, you revealed the big bad guy, and he's sort of working his magic from Earth. He's he's a he's a highly connected guy who's got nefarious plots, and so is this story going to dial back the space action, or are we going to see a lot more intrigue and a lot more uh, personal, you know, personal fighting or or Earthbound fighting? Uh, and other kinds of action, or uh, or is it or is it additive or something else? Altogether, we are going to be seeing some. You know, we're going to see some space action, uh, but you know, exactly how that goes down actually plays into what what our our villains plot you know, entails. Um, those of you who love Dashing Jack and Gory are going to be happy because those two come back, and they're going to be you know, leading the you know the villain spaceborne uh, actions in this book. Um, our our big pirate mastermind, you know, the leader of the Red Eyes Armada, the eponymous Red Eyes, he actually gets rotated you know to the back burner, and that's because he's being set up for the for the third book. Um, his appearances are going to be few and he's very much part of the B plot, uh, so to speak. So more of dashing Jack and gory, not so much with red eyes. Um, but you want to pay attention to what's going on with the, in, with the relationships between those, you know, those three characters and our mastermind count Vicun kiss, because when book three hits a lot of why, that's being done and how that goes down is going to be set up here. So even though the, you've got a, you've got a clear conflict in mind with the fate of the countess in hiding and 
will this mastermind's plots be disrupted by the our galactic hero? This is also serving as a bridge to a, a third book in the series. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you are you working to a, a trilogy? Is it going to be a like a classic opening bridge, fantastic finale? Yeah, this arc is a you know, this arc is a three book arc, and after that we will be you know after that most of the major plot threads that have been set up in Reavers uh, are going to be resolved and. What's going to be left is something that's going to go carry over to the next arc after that. Oh, okay. I think I see what's going on. Hmm. You know, I did. I did want to ask: is there is there anything more you want to say to help anybody who just listened to that and have not read Reavers? What What should we know about your books and what to expect and Go ahead. Well, the the major influences, you know, for me putting together uh, the Star Knight saga, one of them are the great historical historical rom- you know, romances of Western literature. The uh, the matter of of Britain, which is the the Arthurian cycle. The matter of France, which is everything about uh, the uh, Lord, you know, uh, Roland and Charlemagne and the paladins. And the matter of Rome, which is you know the classical, all of the classical heroic literature of Greece and Rome. So the Aeneid, you know, Aeneid, uh, Iliad, um, etc. And that means that there's going to be an overarching plot thread that goes on for quite some time. So this is not, you know, I did not envision this to be a simple three book trilogy. I envisioned this as nine. So three book, three sets of, you know, a, a trilogy of trilogies. So what starts with Reavers, where it's a pretty simple, hey, uh, hey, we're a bunch of space pirates, let's go grab the princess, starts spiraling out of control as as the events become truly epic and galactic in scope and scale. And that's why it's the original title was The Matter of the Milky Way. And internally when uh when care especially this is going to start cropping up more and more once we you know, once we get further along um the the events of the early books which are going to be uh encapsulated as as the taking of gabriella robin that's the, are going to start becoming called you know becoming called by characters as the matter of the milky way and that's because what started off as a bunch of space pirates rampaging around the galaxy uh start you know, start becoming something far greater in importance, and our mastermind villain is going to be the ma- going to be the driving force behind that. And that leads to you know that leads to a concept that's being introduced it well, somewhat explicitly with Hounds of Nimrod, but was implied with Reavers, and that's the uh, and that's the intervention of the supernatural. Uh, for those who who miss who missed it in Reavers, there is a fallen angel, a literal fallen angel who's one of the bad guys, and he's a minor. He he plays a supporting role, but he doesn't really do much other than be the guy who makes all of the all of the bad guys really important super you know super technology. Well, we're going to see a little more of that in Hounds of Nimrod, and we're going to see what that can involve. Um. We're going to see the use, you know. We're going to see the use of technology that impl- that isn't entirely what it seems. I, you know, more than that, and I will spoil the spoil a key element of the story. Uh, we're we're going to be seeing yet more of the of the motif where the bad guys run around looking like like Bronze Age warriors. We're going to see more, you know. We're going to see more use of of uh, of you know, of imagery and um, language revolving around the the revolving around the Bronze Age. We're going to see yet more yet more people saying "Victory for Babylon" as the villainous battle cry, and we're going to start seeing the good guys you know st- you know start using their own counterparts. Ooh, that sounds that sounds like a, a way to turn it from just a little 
conflict it's over victory the, for Cleveland, isn't it? Victory for Cleveland. <laughs> I like <Damn> it. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things I, I really do hate in in fiction are characters that are that are uh, good, but they but they win because of plot. And I don't like that. I don't like villains that succeed because of plot either. You know, idiot balls and their, and their counterparts are, are tropes that I find annoying. So I do my best to put together, you know, put together intelligent heroes and villains who put together plots that are, that are not too hard to, for a reader to follow, but make sense within their own context. And Hounds of Nimrod is very much an exercise in that, you know, in that for me. So we're going to see Lord Roland be more than just a very stalwart, you know, square, you know, square jawed kind of guy. We're going to start seeing him be very intelligent, very calculating and do so without being, you know, without having to, you know, do something else that I think is a lot of a, a, a very much a trope of the woke folks in science fiction, where they honestly believe that good is dumb and therefore you cannot be an intelligent character without being, you know, uh, without being morally compromised somehow. And that's not a thing. You can be a morally, a morally upright character with, you know, with rock hard integrity and still be a very smart, very calculating, even very cunning individual. I like the sound of that. If I may go on a tangent, it sounds like you're describing a phenomenon that I encountered a long time ago, trying to figure out why villains are so popular. Because in in, in Hollywood and in modern stories anyway, or comic books even, the villain is competent. The villain is the master of his destiny and the driver of these stories. The comic book heroes in particular, they are often reacting to a villain's nefarious plot or James Bond 007, which is that sort of cunning, clever uh, sort of protagonist. These are... Uh, these are villains who they know what they want. They've enacted a crazy plan to do it and they have no scruples and they may be downright evil. And uh, at any rate, at any rate, they're a, a thorn in the protagonist's side, but they're going after it. And so even though they're the bad guys, there's a sort of a begrudging respect or admiration for that. You know, pe competent people who execute the plans that they want to get what they want. That's admirable. And not to, to put words in your mouth, it sounds like you want to see that in your protagonists as well. Mm -hmm. uh, good, a good example is uh, we just talked about Peace Talks, the new Harry Dresden book. Have you read that yet? No, I haven't. Well, uh, I like it. And uh, one of the things about the Dresden Files is that, yeah, every once in a while, uh, Harry gets a, a, the main character gets a, handout from his fairy godmother or or whomever but often he's uh he's sort of thrown into these weird circumstances and he has to fight or figure out his way out right there's there's always something like there's always something where he cleverly uses his knowledge or or powers that he's learned throughout the book to turn everything around and, and escape alive that sort of thing it sounds like you want to do that. You want your your protagonists to be competent, to be admirable, and not just not just win because they are good. Win because they are good and competent. Is that fair, or am I just rambling? Yeah, you've got, you know you've got it. Um, it's it's one of the things that that really you know i think is uh something that is missing and you know some folks in the chat are noticing it it's the moral element to the fiction you know to this kind of fiction has been missing you know for the long, for quite some time and it is up to us in you know in the indie scene to bring it back and i'm glad to be part of that yeah um 
yeah the the thing that that I think is going to be interesting and if I can pull it off I know I've done it right um is that there are elements to you know there are elements to you know to the characters that are are not uh propagandistic but are supposed to be uh something that um uh, god I'm trying to remember I, let me rephrase I got an email from from a man over the week and he was asking about what was in my books because he wanted to be able to read it to his children and his children are very young about you know preschool age and i he wanted to know if there was any uh you know adult content or language and i said no and i've studiously avoided that you know that because i wanted to know an all-ages audience and i really hadn't thought about it at the time because i was i wasn't really think, when i wrote reavers i wasn't necessarily thinking about you know uh people buying it to read to their children but i was thinking of it in the terms that uh have been discussed on in uh, in book twitter uh just the other day which is uh writing stories that that older older children you know roughly preteen early teenage could read and see uh, as a model and see, you know, th there's a model for something for someone that they should become when, you know, as they, you know, pass through adolescence and into adulthood. And that's why uh, the character of Cretan is there. Cretan is, is very much meant to be that kind of, that kind of uh, young boy about to enter adolescence, that character, you know, that age group um, looking at first his father you know, first his father and then his father's master, respectively, uh, respectively Sibley and Lord Roland, as the adult role models for him to emulate. And for those who are looking for a dynamic character who changes it, who changes over time, that's the guy to watch. Uh, he's introduced at age 10 in Reavers. He's still the same age for Hounds of Nimrod and he'll be about that age when, when the next book tentatively titled the siege of second Salisbury uh, happens. And then there's a time skip and he gets a little older. He, he, and he actually passes into adolescence by book four. And by the time the entire nine book series I have, you know, I have planned is finished. He's actually reaching adulthood in galactic Christendom. Um, and by that point, the boy who looked up to Lord Roland is now becoming a young man who could easily succeed him in time. And that's not without struggle. That's not without pain, but there is something and there is something that he has to become. He has to work at it over time in order to become the man that he sees now as his model. And I think that's important for you know for uh, for literature to in order to have its lasting impact across generations. It's why people still read the John Carter books. It's one of the reasons people still read Tarzan. It's one of the reasons people still pick up the medieval romances like the Song of Roland. Is that these protagonists, these hero characters, are not just characters whose lives we vicariously enjoy, but we are able to look at them either as children or as the fathers and mothers of children and point to them and say, this is somebody we should, you know, we should model ourselves after as best we can. Uh, it sounds like Roland is an archetype. Oh, oh, he most definitely is. <laughs> there you go. Mm -hmm. And by contrast, uh, the villains are meant the you know the villains are meant to be characters that are to be taken as warnings for somebody to you know, who may or may not be uh, inclined to go wrong. Uh, Dashing Jack is meant to be a very tragic character, and over time, that's going you know, how and why he is and what happens as a result becomes you know becomes more obvious. Uh, some characters are just plain bad. And that too will become obvious, but you know, the the thing that 
you know, the thing that I really want to attempt here is I'm, I'm basically talking to all of the morons who just celebrated that, that fake, you know, award ceremony called the Hugos and say, no, you suck. You abandon everything that makes science fiction great. And here's why I'm doing this with less than you do. And I'm still clowning on you, even though I am literally down a leg. <laughs> That's it. The one-legged man outrights all of you. Well, I uh, I did I did like Reavers, and I look forward to seeing what you you've got coming out here. Uh, as I said before, I'm not a fan of the genre. In fact, I got a funny story to tell you later. But uh, I I'm looking forward to it. I've I, I've backed it, and I've I'm looking forward to seeing a paperback of that. Uh, and I hope you have great success because it sounds like you know what you want and. Uh, to pull that off would result in a very satisfying and enjoyable series. Ah, thank you all. And, you know, uh, I'll put this out on the record. Uh, Brian, when he did his last exceed, um, you know, campaign said that he, you know, he at 10 K, he would be looking at doing a, a manga adaptation. Well, that's been one of my goals for star Knight since the start. And, um, probably sometime after I finished book three, I really do want to start do, looking into uh, taking the, those three books and start adapting them to other media, audio books and, and comic adaptations being the two that are probably most feasible. After that, um, we'll see what happens. But my, my, you know, the dream is actually to make my way, you know, make my way to an anime adaptation and not the, and not just seasonal trash. I'm talking about the really good stuff that a lot of us remember from the peak period between the late eighties all the way through the nineties. That's the dream. That's the dream. Well, since, since that's a common thing I've heard from you guys, uh, before the sci-fi mech fans like you and Brian Niemeyer, would you settle for an Americanized anime such as Avatar The Last Airbender, or does it have to be full-on Studio Ghibli, you know, done by the Japanese or not at all? Um, it's not so much that I would I would refuse an American you know, an American studio. It's that the the current problem with the American with the American uh, end of the business is that it's thoroughly converged, and therefore it's so full of ins these insufferably woke twats that yeah you know, I just can't trust them not to you know not to attempt to to distort to, to distort corrupt or outright steal you know, steal the, the property out from under my nose. And, you know, that's why I, I have made a condition and, you know, made a condition that any, you know, any uh, film or TV adaptation has to have the music done by only one person, only one person I will accept as being in charge. And that's Yoko Kano. I, I don't know who that is, but I'm sure that means a lot to fans. She's the inspiration for my heroine, Gabriella Robin. Oh, okay. Well, of course, you've got to get the right singer. Well, singer, composer, arranger, all-around musical genius. Um, she's been, She's a veteran of the business, been around since the 80s, and still vital and active she's just not been really really visible much in the last couple of years um the big you know the big reason for that is that's you know having yo insisting on yoko kano doing the music is pretty much my brown m m contract clause uh for those who who don't know what that is that's uh a, a, a trope coined by uh oh god uh, David Lee Roth, when he was the lead singer of Van Halen, the he put that in the contract clause for all of their concert venues as a way of measuring at a glance whether or not the contract, you know, the contract would was read properly so that when their stage was set up, it would be set up properly so that there would be no safety concerns at the show. 
And the way it worked was they had a writer in their contract that said there had to be a fishbowl full of brown M&Ms. No, M&Ms with no brown with no brown M&Ms in it. <laughs> in the dressing room. That's and what David Lee Roth would do is he'd go into the dressing room, find the fishbowl, and then he would actually fish through and see if there were any brown M&Ms. And if there were, he would turn to the band and they cancel the show. And they'd have grounds for it because they, the, uh, the venue was in breach of contract. And inevitably, when they would also check the, the stage equipment and... There things would be out of compliance. They wouldn't be, you know, the elect the electrical stuff wouldn't be set up right, or the pyrotechnics. Remember, this is Van Halen in their heyday. They had pyrotechnics. They were set up wrong, and there were so there were safety hazards either for themselves, for the audience, or for the technical crew. Somebody could have been hurt, and that would have led to lawsuits and other complications. And just having that one seemingly stupid clause in the contract avoided all of that hassle and it's you know something like that is now very actually very common uh, in uh in the mainstream entertainment business so i decided that something like that would be would be uh, my thing to make certain that i got i you know i got the you know the quality i wanted out of the you know out of any uh media adaptations Oh, that's a good idea. Protect yourself. Protect your uh, property. Uh, I think uh, I think we should start wrapping up here, Daddy Warpig. Do you have any final questions or comments? <laughs> I am meditating on this subject. Give me a sec. Why don't you Absolutely. Go? Absolutely. Well, I, I'll say uh, I've already spo spoken about uh, – I, I hope you do well on the – campaign and i hope that the book comes out great i do want to say you know thank you for coming on it's a pleasure to have you on uh, it's it's it is it is a little unusual to see your name here in the ch in instead of in the chat we don't have any questions from chat today but you've got a lot of people really excited about the star knight saga and your ideas on heroes and villains and and doing good for indie publishing. So uh, it's great to see everybody there. Much love for everybody in the audience, um, <laughs> especially Yoko Kano. It's Rawl and Judd Goswick are shaming me here. Sorry, guys. I saw one Escaflone movie <laughs> once, and I promptly forgot it. Uh, but yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Best of luck. Uh, I, I think you've got some cool stuff going on, and I hope you make it work. And uh, and next time something cool happens, come back on and chat with us about it. Yeah, will do. Awesome. Uh, Daddy Warpig has sipped and sipped and sipped and meditated. We are seventy percent to gold. Just three hundred dollars more will will get us to the get us over the top. Uh, that's three. You know, if the three that's three build a mex. And uh, there are all I there are also uh, be in a book, die in a book, character illustrations, and uh, design the back cover as featured perks right now. Um, let's see. Uh, I hope. Um, God, I don't have. I don't see the you know, the campaign link in the chat, and I don't have uh, link permissions. So, uh, could one you either of you you know drop the campaign link into the into the chat, please? I I can do that. I will say that it's in the show notes already. I I made sure it was in there. Mm hmm. Yeah. If you have you know if you haven't stopped by the Indiegogo page you know yet, and you you know uh, the link will be in the description after the show uh otherwise well or in the chat right now and uh you can get in for as little as five bucks or if you want to throw more at me go ahead i'm not going to stop you um and uh i want assuming brian's got room in his schedule you know in his schedule for me i should be able to get the manuscript to him Get it back, get it, eh, do you know? Do revisions and get it out the door. B 
be no later than Christmas this year. And uh, I will try not to screw up, <laughs> screw up the release, the, you know, the release this time, so that all of you who who backed for a paperback are not, you know, you know, actually get your copy before it's available on Amazon. I apologize for screwing it up last time. Um, I didn't know how that worked. So, uh, long and short is 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 that. Uh, Campaign hits goal. Next stretch goal, which is fifteen hundred, will be the paperback catch-up option. You know, upgrade for the paperback backers. Everybody gets a digital copy of Reavers if you put in for a book at all. Uh, you know, as soon as the campaign is done, and I and of course, uh, you know, you'll get your digital copies of Hounds of Nimrod as soon as it's finished. Uh, so please, you know, if you know, so, please double check that your email address is correct. Please double check that your mailing address is correct. And uh, since I I'm handling all fulfillment by myself, I want to make certain that I get it all done right the first time. And and uh, you guys get your copies as soon as I can get them to you. Uh, thank you all very much for backing Reavers. Thank you all very much for uh, backing Hounds of Nimrod. If you have, if you haven't, please, please do so. And um, as soon as it's available up on Amazon, uh, please, you know, please submit reviews. User reviews help. <laughs> I don't have the advertising budget that John Delarose does. So every little bit helps. All right. Well, I want to thank uh, Brad for coming on the show. I want to thank my inimitable and inestimable co-host, John. I want to thank everybody who showed up in the chat, and I want to thank everybody who uh, come and listen later. You can catch us on youtube.com slash geekgab. Once again, that's youtube.com slash geekgab. And we are also available on the Google Play Store. We are also available on SoundCloud.com and on the iTunes Store. Come and uh, listen, subscribe on the device of your choice. Folks, we are signing off for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.